Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and um, for our life with each other and for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass and for your presence with us all this day. Um, we carry our sins with us through the day, often not wanting to see them or deal with them, but they're there. We only need the right circumstances to bring them out, to remind us that they're there. Give us all um, a greater courage, a greater spirit of humility, a greater faith that we can bear our sins better than we do, um, knowing that they're a help, that they remind us um, that we're one with everybody else in their sins, even if people don't want to admit them. They help us to see people differently and relate to them differently, hopefully to bring you to them. A greater sense of justice, it's not always what the world wants, and a greater sense of mercy, something that the world doesn't always understand very well. Um, help us and um, help us to take all that we can from these readings to learn more about you in the world um, and to bring you to what we do, particularly with each other. Um, help each one of us be strengthened in the love that we bring, um, particularly to loved ones around us, spouses, children, grandchildren, to everything we do. Um, and give us strength to enter whatever crosses um, that will entail for us. Tonight, I'd like to offer a special um, prayer of um, care for Bob and Marcy, but particularly Bob tomorrow. Watch over him during the operation. Um, there's an uncertainty surrounding a lot of what's going on. Give the doctors clear sight, help them to see um, and make good decisions and what they're going to do as they move through the operation. Um, protect him, keep him safe, please, and let no harm come to him. Um, let the surgery help heal him. And throughout it all, um, help him to keep a cheerful heart. It's what he does. And help Marcy to have a quiet heart. Um, and help any one of us with whatever deep concerns we carry in our hearts. Um, be strengthened in our efforts to turn to you in all that we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, I'm sorry Suzanne's not here because I was gonna I was gonna embarrass her. I think when she comes in, I was. Hey Bob. Yeah. Maximus. Matt, right, right. Good for you. Wow, good for you. You like that movie? Yeah. I do too. It's just under departures. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love both of them. I love both of them. I think they're both great. Um, can I have your attention, all of you? I've got a, um, let's see, I'm not sure that I need to say this, but um, I was asking Suzanne as we were on our way here tonight, um, 
I've been particularly concerned about the catechetical aspect of the thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks for doing that. Um, I'd be glad to turn this part of the class over to you if you want to. Nope. <laughs> See how agreeable she is? Um, there are times during the work of this work that we're doing the, together when I seriously question the catechetical value of it, the aspects of it. Um, there are times when I'm less concerned than others. I, I, I think I'm particularly concerned about it now. I'm, I'm making a guess here. Because we've just dealt with two tragedies, and the typical attitude of people doing tragedies is, is that evil overcomes good, some bad happens. And I've, I've tried to um, answer that, to, to show that that's not what's going on in a tragedy. The, tra the tra <coughs> tragedy, in its form, is much more in keeping with what Boethius says in Consolation, in the sense that in all good tragedies, some evil is dealt with and overcome. So every tragedy ends with the restoration of an order. It's a recovery of a balance. So for people to have, because people do, they just get these general notions in their head. For people to have these black-white notions about tragedy and, and look at tragedy as if it's bad, is simply to misunderstand it. And, and when that happens, they're going to misread it. They just won't see what's going on. They'll see it all in a negative ask. Um, one of my concerns throughout all of this work that we've done together is um, to read good literature that in some ways helps us become aware of Christ so that we can more deeply understand him, be strengthened in our faith in him, to see images of him even if they're not perfect, to take some strength from seeing Portia or um, Helena. And in my mind, at least, I, I know there's some disagreement on this, but even in figures like Othello or Desdemona, tragic or flawed figures, um, um, in the, one of the homilies earlier in this week, Father Sojin, I can't remember what the readings were, but, but he was reminding us I think he was talking about kids in the Trinity School when he was doing Mass for them and asking the kids what they wanted to do, and one of the kids, out of nowhere, I, and I think it was at the end, kids said, firemen, policemen, you know, whatever the jobs were. And he said towards the end, one girl raised her hand, a little girl, and she said, I want to be a saint. God, my heart leapt, and I know his did too. How many, how many people want to be, how many even grown-up Christians want to be saints today. Um, and he, he, because of the connection, he went on to say, remember the saints um, in some ways are no different from all of us. Um, saints are sinners who just keep trying. And I thought how wonderful, because Paul says, you know, that the, um, the condition for hope is endurance, to persevere, to stay with it every time we sin to um, every time we sin to um, get up keep going not despair because I think we, we carry 
and maybe I'm speaking too much for myself here, I, don't, I hope I'm not, but we, we carry this pride in believing we have to be really good or Christ won't like us. When everything he keeps saying is, I came for sinners, I came for sinners. You know, the example in the temple of the two men is, is one of the best examples of it. When we get to Scarlet Letter after this is over, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because what's going to be made clear in that book, it's like Mel, it's um, Moby Dick. It stands with that in mid-19th century. Hawthorne and Melville are looking at the same problem, even though they treat it differently. But both of them had this in common. It's what drew them to each other as friends. Both, unlike Emerson and all the transcendentalists at Harvard, who were the great intellectuals of that, and Emerson's, can you stop? Can you stop? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to figure out. If you could just do it quietly. Um... um Emerson was the great intellectual who wrote that essay that's a standard for intellectuals in our country, self-reliance. I mean, it, the, the appeal was each person has got to follow his own drumbeat. That's the metaphor. That we're only really good when we're self-sufficient, when we follow our own inclination. Um, I, I think it was Ivor Winters that was the, one of the first critics I read that called Emerson, I think it was Emerson, the left hand of the devil. Um, I mean, he saw through the pride of that, that we think when we're above other people or don't need other people, we're, we're what we should be. The Catholic tradition is, you know this from Dante, the beginning of Dante, Dante's going to go up that mountain alone and find that he can't do it. That we really need each other. We, we need to see ourselves in relationships with other people. Um, we often don't appreciate what other people do for us when we're, you know, marching our own drumbeat. So, anyway, one of the values of this literature, it seems to me, is that it helps us to see good in the world when so often we don't. In church, in the readings, we're always, we're, we're so often given literal pictures of Christ in the world. He's, he's doing something. It's an image, of, it's a concrete image. What do we do when he's gone? I mean, it led me to this question last week that I want to get back to here. What was Christ doing before Christ came? What, was God, what were the trinity, trinity of persons doing after Christ left? It's easy to see him in a scene in Jerusalem, in Jericho, healing the blind man, you know, I mean, arguing with or, or setting straight the Pharisees. But do we see Christ at work in the world? Are we aware? Do we make good judgments? Um, so often, I, I hope this is clear from reading, so often we read for our own ideas. We've got these ideas in our head, we read a book, and we find what we want. We're not really seeing what's there. So um, learning to read well, to, to see what's faithful to the surface something and faithful to something underneath it is a harder thing. Um, one of the saints honored this last week was Albertus, who was, I think, the teacher of Thomas, and the description of the prayers for him was because he loved learning, he loved learning. He was St. Thomas's teacher, said, the, the more we understand about the world, the more we understand God. So my hope is that by reading these works, it can deepen our sense of other people and our ability to understand past surfaces and black-white readings to see into depths, to be careful. Can we find Christ? Are we aware of what God's doing in the world outside of church 
What's he, where is he at work? Are these, are these writers helping us to see anything? So this concern for poetry is real. Um, one of the reasons I raised it for this particular class, as you know, is because after we did the works on modernity, we were leaving the Middle Ages at a time when Christianity was fading. The modern world was turning away from Christ. We've entered the modern world. It's what moderns today call a post-Christian world. It's a world in which God doesn't exist anymore. We've entered the modern world. The plays that we read were right on that threshold. Here we're going back to a time just before Christ came into the room. Is, is God at work? Shakespeare's Catholic. He's going back to a time um, just before Christ came, and he's dealing with this couple and these major international wars when, when Rome is seen as the conqueror of the world. So he's in a position to see things that Roman historians or even modern historians wouldn't see. Do we learn anything? That was the major question. When we look at this romance, are, are these two figures, both of them imperial figures, they're world rulers, are they just drunk with passion? You know, are they just um, indulging themselves in drinking and sex? Because that's, that's one of the perspectives the plays offer. Cleopatra is really clear. The Romans are going to present her that way. After Anthony dies and she's going to die, she says, they're going to boy me. You know, they're going to treat me. They're going to in the, sh the mockery shows they're going to do of Anthony and Cleopatra, you know, when, when Caesar goes back to Rome. They're going to parody her and Anthony. They're going to treat him like a playboy and her like a whore. How do we see them? How, do, how does the world see them? How does Caesar see them? How do we see them? Is God at work? Why did Shakespeare write this play? He, he doesn't just pick up plays. So. Major themes in the plays. The, the city again, two cities, and um, as in all the other plays, we know that the city is a place of trial. It's where people go, and once they go and get involved in the city, they tend to be overtaken by pride and envy, a spirit of rivalry and competitiveness, and very often the worst things come out. Um, masculine and feminine, the, the issue of fortune is real. Um, Cleopatra calls Caesar fortune's lackey, that Caesar's always, he, he's defined by fortune in this sense. Everything he's done, everything he does is with a sense of trying to overcome it. Where he can't, he knows it, he's just patient and prudent, he works with it and goes on. He's just a very prudent world leader. Um, Anthony and Cleopatra are going to surrender. Um, they're going to both take their lives. Um, and poetry, again, I've said is a major concern because of what Shakespeare's going to do with this. But even in a more particular way, because remember when we go into Egypt, the soothsayer can see things. He can foretell the future. Um, so those are some of the concerns. I want to read a poem and then I want to look at the book and I just what I want to do is go through some passages that lead up to the end and then I want to put the questions to you guys what what you make of this. Right. Don't don't pull out the poems, just hear it. It's it's um, Herbert's poem on death. And the reason that I chose it tonight is because everybody has to face death in this book. And Anthony and Cleopatra reach a point where they're going to rush at it to embrace it. Um, and 
one of the questions that I'll ask when we get there is, are they doing this in a, um, in a Roman way, in keeping with the Romans who believed it was honorable to take their lives? Or is it in another spirit? How are we going to look at that? Hmm. Yeah. Chester, hi. We missed both of you guys last week. Missed both of you. Hello. Good evening, all. Hey, Matthias. <laughs> <laughs> that could be ominous. He didn't. <laughs> he had to suffer a real death. Did you say Maximus? <laughs> Here, uh, this is Herbert's death. Don't look for it, just. Remember, he's an Anglican priest, he's writing in the Renaissance, um, and every poem takes a different form. He was one of the first great experimental poets in, in the English language, just at the time when it was taking off. This one's called Death. Death, that was once an uncouth, hideous thing, nothing but bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was open, but thou couldst not sing, for we considered thee as at some six or ten years hence. After the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust and bones to sticks. We looked on this side of thee, shooting short, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind, dry dust, which sheds no tears, but makes stort. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace, much in request, much sought for as a good. For we do now behold thee gay and glad as a doomsday, when souls shall wear their new array, and all thy bones with beauty shall be clad. Therefore we can go die as sleep, and trust half that we have unto an honest faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. So it's a, it's a poem celebrating death. It's treating it as something we should look forward to, not as something to dread. And when, when I began a few minutes ago with my comments about you know, this large question about sins and dying, um, I recalled Father's sermon just last week where he reminded us that saints are sinners that just keep trying. That so often I think we carry this feeling that we have to be perfect or Christ isn't going to love us when he came for sinners, that it was a way of trying to encourage everybody not to be afraid of sins or be careful of the Jewishness in all of us, that we have to be among the righteous because then it gets easier to look down on people. We're all in sin. Christ came for us all. Um, he makes that really clear. Um, we were watching something last night, um, and I think it was in the movie, I can't remember, or something, but. A quote was given by Churchill, and the quote went something like this for Churchill, because you know how instrumental he was in bringing the Second World War to an end. He said, success is failing again and again, failing again and again and again, and um, picking up from each failing um, without losing any, any of the enthusiasm you had for the first one. It's basically saying the same thing Father was saying. Something like that was, after failing again and again and again, that's to pick ourselves up without losing any of the enthusiasm we had when we began.
saints are sinners that just keep trying to not be afraid of our sins, to keep trusting in Christ and endure to keep at it. One of the reasons I'm taking this up right now because we're dealing with a tragedy again. And we're, it's going to end with Anthony and Cleopatra taking their lives. They're going to be back in Othello's world. It's going to end with two people taking their lives, dying. So how do we look at it? Okay, that was the question. Let me go back over some of the passages to lead to the end. Now remember, before we start, um, Shakespeare setting two worlds against each other, and in both of these worlds, people are identified with their regime. You, you can't see Caesar apart from Rome. He's absolutely Roman. You can't see Cleopatra apart from Egypt. She's the queen of Egypt. Both of them make that claim. They see themselves in that term, in those terms. Um, they're both despotic. They're both absolute tyrants in their world. The end of them is different. Caesar rules because he's trying to bring a justice to the world. He says towards the end of the play, universal peace is near at hand. He's striving to overcome fortune, to use male strength to defeat these peoples and bring, to extend the rule of justice over the world. Cleopatra's aim is for herself, to please herself. She manipulates, she uses, um, she's given to being a tyrant as Caesar, but her end is for herself. Um, this world is defined by contracts and strategies. Um, it's constantly trying to overcome the past. Remember when the play began, um, a Caesar or a civil war had just ended. Caesar and Anthony had just defeated Brutus and Cassius, who killed um, Julius Caesar. Um, there had been wars with Pompey before that. Um, when the play opens, Pom Pompey's son is doing things to gather forces to attack Rome. So. Shakespeare is very clear that Rome is attempting to come out from under the past, the resentments, the grudges that keep playing a role in the, in the present, in the hope that they're going to achieve this peace in the world. Um, so contracts are at the basis of it. It's like this is the prototype ultimately for um, Venice, the Merchant of Venice. Egypt is... Um, is not as contractual. It's a, it's a regime given to feelings and passions. Um, and remember, Rome's attitude towards women is that they're inferior because they're, they don't have the masculine strength. They're, they're not going to further Rome's interest in conquering the world. They're, they don't have the physical strength that men have. Egypt is negative towards men. In the beginning, the, the um, Cleopatra's women say, that um, men should be cuckolded, that they should have sex and you know, um, be betrayed by their husbands and women should have this control. So in lots of ways, the two worlds stand off against each other. One of the things I just want to underscore for a second, because it's interesting, Rome tends to look at things in terms of strategies, military strategies. Um, I read you those lines in the beginning of Cleopatra, or Anthony Cleopatra, where Charmian asks for the fortune to be told, and the soothsayer tells the fortunes, and he sees the future. I read them, didn't I? There are four of them, and every one of them turns out to be true. 
Um, I've thought about that a lot, and I'm, I'm going to offer this tentatively, provisionally. Either Shakespeare is saying that that prophetic power is Eastern, which is given to the East because it's a little bit otherworldly, more otherworldly than the West, or he's saying that there's a power of prophecy related to the body in a regime that makes the body more important. Because in Rome, there's a willingness to give up the body constantly. They're always at war. Men are always sacrificing their body. That's what makes up the Roman world that's, as it's presented here. What's going on in Egypt is Anthony and Cleopatra are constantly having sex, and the women are talking about sex. So there's a more immediate indulgence in the body, an affirmation of it. In one, it's at risk, and the other, it's pleasured. Those are contrasting. Um, it, it, and it, it's interesting that it seems to give rise to two very different ways of looking at the world. So those are the two centers that Shakespeare's working with, okay? You know it's happened um, um, when Anthony's wife died, he had to go back to Rome to try to deal with um, the civil wars, Pompey's growing um, threat to Rome. When he left, Cleopatra worried about him, and Caesar and, and Anthony make a pact um, to, that he will marry Octavia to, to try to patch up the tensions between them. He does. Then Caesar attacks Lepidus, he and Pompey. No, he and Lepidus attack Pompey, and once they conquer him, Caesar gets rid of Lepidus. Um, Anthony sends Octavia back, and Caesar and Anthony at war. Okay, that's where we are. I want to just quickly now read some things and go to these questions. Um, Anthony and Cleopatra are at, and Caesar are at war. Um, When they're making preparations for war, um, there's a decision that Anthony has to make whether to fight Caesar at land or by sea, and you know, against all the advice, he decides to fight him at sea. And he does that against all counsel because everybody knows that, that Anthony is by far the greatest warrior. Anthony even offers to fight Caesar single combat, and Caesar refuse, refuses. Um, Now, the background of what's going on in this war between Caesar and Cleopatra is what I'm going to call withdrawals. It's an extension of this metaphor that I've been using about the apophatic, this Shakespeare's constant use of metaphors like gaps, absences, privations. Um, they run through the play. When, when Octavia returns home, Caesar speaks of her as if she, um, she was absent or not enough could be said about her. Um, um, one of the things that reinforces that in each of the camps, somebody's leaving the, the leader. Betrayals are going on. In Act 3, scene 10, um, when Anthony goes to war with Caesar in the first battle, 
The soldiers are um, describing what happened, Act 3, Scene 10. Scarus says about line five or so, the greater canticle of the world is lost. With very ignorance, we have kissed away kingdoms and provinces. What was there is no longer there. Um, Scarus says um, that Cleopatra's running turned the battle. She once being loof, the noble rune of her magic, Anthony claps his sea wing, and like a doting mallard leaving the fight in height, flies after her. I never saw an action of such shame, experienced manhood, order never before, did violate itself. Candidia says, our fortune on the sea is out of breath and sinks most lamentably. Had our general been what he knew himself, it had gone well. Oh, he has given example for our flight, most grossly by his own. A few downs, a few lines down, he'll say, To Caesar will I render my legions and my horse. Six kings already show me the way of yielding. So, he's the, f remember, Minas had already left Pompey. Remember in the ship meeting when, when all the world leaders were there, Minas went to Pompey and said, do you want to rule the world? Pompey didn't understand. He said again, do you want to world, rule the world? He still didn't understand. He said, I will kill them. He could have killed the triumvirs then, and Pompey would have ruled. And as soon as Pompey says no, Minas says, I will leave you. This is, um, this is Act 2, Scene 7. You don't have to go there, but Act 2, Scene 7, line 80. For this, this is an aside. I'll never follow thy called fortunes more, who seeks and will not take when once tis offered, shall never find it more. So what's happening is loyalties seem to depend on success and power. Not the absence of it, not the defeat, on being successful, being powerful. Now Candidius is leaving Antony. Um, when Cleopatra runs and Antony follows, he comes back to land and has this to say. This is Act 3, Scene 11. Hark, the land bids me tread no more upon it. It is a shame to bear me. Friends, come hither. I am so lated in the world that I have lost my way forever. This was a man whose whole identity was staked on winning battles, and he had done it forever. Um, I, um, I have a ship laden with gold. Take that divided fly and make your peace with Caesar. I have fled myself and have instructed cowards to run and show their shoulders. Friends be gone, telling everybody leave. Let that be left which leaves itself. He has no identity anymore. He's telling all of his comrades, these men who have been fighting battles for him for all their life, who have stood by him, risked their lives, who, who, who want to be loyal to him because they love him. He's saying, go. Let that be left with leaves itself. To the seaside straight away, I will possess you of that ship and treasure. Leave me. I pray a little, pray you now. Nay, do so, for indeed I have lost command. Therefore I pray you. Um, the, the women urged Cleopatra to go to him, to console him. She's having struggled, a struggle doing it, about line 50 or so. Um, when, when Antony and Cleopatra meet, he says, O whither hast thou led me, Egypt? See how I convey my shame out of thine eyes by looking back what I have left behind, destroyed and dishonored. O my, o my Lord, my Lord, forgive my fearful sails. I little thought you would have followed. Egypt, thou knewest too well my heart was to try thy rudder tied by the strings. Thou shouldest tow me after, or my spirit 
thy full supremacy thou knew, and that thy beck might from the bidding of the gods command me. Oh, my pardon. She's expressing her shame. Now I must to the young man send humble treaties. That is, he's got to beg to Caesar to make terms. He sends terms. Um, Caesar's going to send a messenger to try to make terms and persuade Cleopatra to turn on Antony. Enobarba, Act 3, Scene 13, Enobarba says this. Um, Act 3, Scene 13, at the beginning. Antony only that would make his will lord of reason, what though you fledged from the great face of war, whose several rangers fright each other. Why should he follow? The itch of his affection should not then have nicked his captainship. He should have never let his affections for her keep him from doing what he should have done as a commander. At such a point when half to half the world opposed, he being the mirrored question, t'was a shame no less than was his loss to course your flying flags and leave his navy gazing. He's saying that to Cleopatra. Um, Thaddeus tries to make terms with her when Anthony's gone. Anthony returns and sees what she's doing, and he gets furious. Um, Act 3, scene 13, about line 110. You have been a bogger ever, but we in our viciousness grow hard. O misery on it, the wise gods seal our eyes in our own filth, drop our clear judgments, make us adore our heirs, laugh at it while we strut to our confusion. Very often when people go down, they'll justify what they're doing as if it's a good thing. So blinded are they. Um, he's ready to kill her, um, but he realizes what Caesar's done, and he, and he tells his men to whip Thidius, the servant that Caesar had sent, and to go back to Caesar. About line 150, um, Anthony, alack, our terrene moon is now eclipsed and portends alone the fall of Anthony. This is after he's sending Thidius back whipped. Cleopatra, I must stay his time. I've got to be patient till he recovers himself. To flatter Caesar, would you mingle eyes with one that ties his points? Her, not know me yet? Anthony, cold-hearted towards me? Ah, uh, dear, if I be so, from my cold heart, let heaven engender hail and poison it in the source. And the first stone drop in my neck as it determines so dissolve my life. Let the worst thing happen to me before I betray you, is what she's saying. Because he's furious. She's saying, you're mistaken. The next Caesarean smite till by degrees the memory of my womb together with my brave Egyptian. All by the discanding of this pelted storm like graveless till the flies and gnats of Nile have buried them for prey. Caesarean was her child by Caesar. She's saying, wipe out my line. She's giving up all connection to her regime. All, all paternity, maternity, the line. Um, Anthony, I am satisfied Caesar sits down in Alexandria where I will oppose his fate. The two reconcile her words, that's my brave lord. It's like he's recovering himself as a fighter again and says, I'm going back. So he's ready to make terms with Caesar. Now he's saying, I'm going to fight again. Um, 180, where nice and lucky men did ransom lives of me for jests. People were going to make fun of me. But now I'll set my teeth and send to darkness all that stopped me. Come. Let's have one other gaudy night. Call to me all my sad captains, fill our bowls once more. Let's mock the, mid the midnight bell. Um, there's a, 
um, he speaks about this as, as if not letting fortune overcome him. Um, going over to Act 4, Scene 3. Um, Anthony has just made an appeal to all of his men before going into battle. This is the night before. And it's the first time we've seen this soldier who's always been tough-minded, sentimental. He's aware that these men have given their lives to him. He says, um, this is Act 4-2, um, about line 16, Thou art honest too, I wish I could be made so many men and all of you clapped up together in an Anthony that I might do you service as good as you have done. He wants to serve them. The gods forbid, well, my good fellows, wait on me tonight, scant not my cups, and make as much of me as when my empire was your fellow too and suffered my command. What does he mean, Enobarbus, to make his followers weep? Tend me tonight. Perchance tomorrow you'll serve another master. I look on you as one that takes his leave. He's, what he's doing is expressing his gratitude that they've been willing to risk their lives for him all their lives, and now he's saying, we may not see past tomorrow. Um, he's, he's trying to thank them. Enobarbus, what mean you, sir, to give them this discomfort? Look, they weep, and I, an ass, am onionite. For shame, transform us not into women. And remember this sexual difference. Um, so, Anthony is expressing a tenderness that seems to pass on to the men. Earlier in the battle, Cleopatra said, I will be a man. She's giving up her womanness to fight in a battle. To take the, She says, I will be a man in this. She runs, but she says, I will take on this identity. Just after that, Act 4, Scene 3, the soldiers are on guard, and suddenly they hear an oboe under the stage. Um, about line eight, anywhere in there. Here we, and if tomorrow our native thri our navy thrive, I have an absolute hope, our landmen will stand up. Tis a brave army and full of purpose. Oboes are playing, and they say, what is that? Music in the air, under the earth. It signs well, does it not? No. Peace, I say, what should this mean? Tis the god Hercules, whom Anthony loved, now leaves him. My question is, Hercules is, has been Anthony's god. He's abandoning him now. Um, Anthony's going to win this next battle. Um, does another, is this god leaving to be replaced by another? Is it just one more, abs, one more withdrawal? Another instance of something being withdrawn. Um, Enobarvus has been w w waiting for the opportunity to leave Anthony, and he does. And the very next day, when they go into battle, Anthony asks for Enobarvus, and one of his soldiers says he's gone. He went to Caesar's camp. Anthony is overcome with shame. Act 4, scene 5. Go, Eros, send this treasure after. Do it. Detain not jot, I charge thee. Write to him, I will subscribe. Gentle, adieu gentle adieus and greetings. Say that I wish he never find more cause to change a master. Oh, my fortunes have corrupted honest men. Just after that, in the next scene, Caesar will say, the time of universal peace is near. Um, Anthony defeats Caesar when everybody would have expected him to be routed that day. In the context of that, um, Anthony's winning, Enobarbus is with Caesar, 
when he just left Anthony because he didn't think he could win anymore. And he says this, Act 4, Scene 6, he receives all of his belongings from Anthony. And Anthony, I mean, his words are, tell him I'm sorry. Say, I wish I'd never find more cause to change a master. He's taking it on him and sending this stuff back. Enobarbus, I am alone, the villain of the earth, and feel I am so most. O Anthony, thou mine of bounty, how wouldst thou have paid my better service when my turpitude thou dost so crown with gold? I betrayed you, and you reward me. It crushes him. This blows my heart. If swift thought break it not, a swifter mean shall outstrike thought. But thought will do it. I feel I fight against thee. No, I will go seek some ditch wherein to die the foulest best befits my latter part of life. He will go into a ditch. This is Act 4, Scene 9, about 12. O sovereign mistress of true melancholy, the poisonous damp of night, dispunge upon me that life a very rebel to my will may hang no more on me. Throw my heart against the flint and hardness of my fault, which being dried with grief will break to powder and finish all foul thoughts. O Anthony, nobler than my revolt is infamous. Forgive me in thine own particular, but let the world rank me in register a master lever <coughs> and a fugitive. Oh, Anthony, and he dies, not because he's killed, he dies of a broken heart. Um, Anthony's defeated, again, because Cleopatra ran again, and now he really does want to kill her. Um, she sends news to him that she's dead, and as soon as he hears of it, he asks Eros to take his life. That was the agreement they had when they become soldiers. It was the Roman thing to do. Act 4, scene 14. Um, Eros takes out the sword, ready to do his duty. Antony fully expects him to do it. And suddenly, Eros kills himself. Eros, why then there, this is about line 90. Thus I do escape the sorrow of Antony's death. He loved him so much he could not stand to see him die. Antony, thrice nobler than myself, thou teachest me, O valiant Eros, what I should and how thou couldst not. My queen and Eros have by their brave instruction got upon me a nobleness in record. But I will be a bridegroom in my death and run into it as to a lover's bed. Come then, and Eros thy master dies, thy scholar. Now, this is the greatest warrior in the world. He has no peril, no equal in the world. He has Eros, Eros, which means love, um, do the act for him. It's what men had their soldiers do. Eros can't do it, kills himself instead. Anthony, who's the greatest soldier, tries to kill himself and potches it. He doesn't, doesn't do it very effectively. He's left with his wound. He gets the news that Cleopatra's alive, and he wants to go to her. So they carry him to the tower, and she receives him. Line at 4, scene 15, about line 10 or so. I'm dying, Egypt, dying, only I hear importune death a while until... Of many thousand kisses, the poor last I lay upon thy lips. I dare not, dear. Dear my Lord, pardon. I dare not, lest I be taken. Not the imperious show of the full fortune Caesar ever shall be brooched with me. If knife drug serpents have edge, I'm safe. Your wife Octavia, with her modest eyes and still conclusion, shall acquire no honor demurring upon me. But come, she lifts him up. Um, he dies. Um, and about line 60, she says, Noblest of men who die, 
Hast thou no care of me? Shall I abide in this dull world, which in the absence is no better than a sty? O see my women. He dies. The crown of the earth doth melt. My Lord, O withered, is the garland of the war. The soldier's pole is fallen. All things having to do with soldiery are gone in the absence of that man. The odds is gone, and there is nothing left remarkable beneath the visiting moon. O quietness, she's dead to our sovereign, charming lady. Um, she says, O women, women, look, our lamp is spent. It's out. Good sirs, take heart. We'll bury him. And then, what's brave, what's noble, let's do after the high Roman fashion, come away. Caesar comes to try to make arrangements. He assures her that he will do everything to accommodate her way of living um, and um, does it with aware that the likelihood is she'll try to take her life um, because she's not going to want to be a trophy. So he asks the men to, to, to watch over her. Um, there's one line just I want you to hear at 5 scene 2 at the very beginning. My desolation does begin to make a better life. Her loss, there's an there's a absence again. Her loss begins to be an improvement. Um, a better life. Tis paltry to be Caesar, not being fortune. He is but fortune's knave. There's something entering, there has been something taking the form of something greater than fortune in these withdrawals. Here it is again. Herculius comes to watch her. She starts to dry a knife and he takes it away. And he says, this is Act 5, Scene 2, about line 50. Cleopatra, do not abuse my master's bounty by the undoing of yourself, lest the world see his nobleness well acted, which your death will never let come forth. Caesar wants to show her off. He's going to use her as a trophy. And uh, Proculius doesn't want to let that happen. No, sir. Um, that I will not wait pinioned at your master's court, nor once be chastised with a sober eye of dull Octavia. Shall they hoist me up and show me to the shouting variety, varletry of censoring Rome? Because you know the Romans are going to look down at her. Rather a ditch in Egypt, be gentle grave unto me. Rather on Nihilus's mud lay me stark naked and let the waterflies blow me into a boring Rather, make my country's high pyramids my gibbet and hang me up in chains. She has been the queen of Egypt, master of that world. And now she's given it up. Um, um, just a couple more lines, and then I want to get to these questions. Um, Dolabella comes in. This is 5-2 again, about 200. He says, Madam is there to sworn by your command, which my love makes religion to obey. Remember, He's, he's an officer under Caesar. He says, I tell you this, Caesar's, Caesar through Syria intends his journey, and within three days you will your children, will he send before, make your best use of this. That is, you have three days in which to do something. So he's saying something to her that Caesar would not want to be said. So it's one more betrayal. Minas, um, um, the other, uh, Antony's other captain, and Edobarmus. And in some ways now, um, Dolabella. The clown comes in um, bringing ask, and you know what's going to happen. But I want to go back to the speech because I want to put these two together. Um, Dolabella comes in, Act 5, Scene 2 again. It's about line 80. And she says, these are really important now because this 
takes place just before she takes her life. She says, um, you Laughlin boys or women tell their dreams that your trick? I understand not, madam. I dreamt there was an Emperor Anthony. Oh, such another sleep that I might see, but such another man, if it please you. His face was as the heavens, and therein stuck a sun and moon, which kept their course and lighted the little O, the earth. Most sovereign creature, he thinks she's mad. This is what the people at the end of Lear think about Lear. They think he's going mad as well. This is a tragic end. She's describing Anthony in a dream. And remember, St. Thomas's words, the human person is greater than the entire physical universe. The worth of a human soul is greater than the entire physical universe. It's important it is. And she's describing Anthony in that way. His face was of the heavens, and there and struck a sun and moon, which kept their course and lighted the little O of the earth. Most sovereign creature, he's saying, come down. His legs bestrid the ocean. His reared arm crested the world. His voice was propertied as all the tuned spheres, and that to friends. But when he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder. For his bounty, there was no winter in it. This is straight up Dante. If you remember Dante when Beatrice when Beatrice meets Dante at the earthly paradise, he looks into Beatrice's eyes and he sees Christ and he says, it's a harvest which will never stop. Because looking into Christ means things are always coming into being and will infinitely go on forever. That's the way she sees Anthony. For his bounty there was no winter in it, an autumn t'was that grew the more by reaping. His delights were dolphin-like. They showed his back above the element they lived in in his livery walked crowns and crownettes, realms and islands where his plates dropped from his pockets. This is absolutely antithetical to what we've been watching in Rome. Rome is the ruler of the earth. Egypt was one of um, contending empires. And she's seen something that transcends both of those. Um, he makes clear that um, Caesar, Caesar will lead her in triumph again. Um, Act 5, Scene 2, about line 215. She says goodbye to Dolabella, and she's going to put the asp on her breast in a second, and she says this to Iris and um, Charmian. Nay, tis most certain, Iris, saucy lictors will catch at us like strumpets, and scald rhymers, poets, these are Roman poets, when, if she's taken back by Caesar as a trophy, this is what people will do with her. They will catch at us like strumpets and scald rhymers, ballad us out of tune. Whoever the poets are will not be in accord with who she is. The quick comedians extemporarily will stage us and present our Alexandrian revels. Anthony shall be brought drunken forth, and I shall see some queak, squeaking Cleopatra boy migrate us in the posture of a whore. I love that verb. Remember when Eno Barbus described her, he said in that passage when he was talking to the soldier, he said, um, when, she, when she's breathless, when she can't catch her breath, she brings life into being. And when she's vile, the, the priests adore her. There's something in her riggingness that reminds us of something greater. So she stands outside of social political conventions. She's saying this is not going to happen. She puts the asp on her breast and then says this. 280, give me my robe, 
put on my crown. I have immortal longings on me. Now no more the juice of Egypt's grape shall moist this lip. Yer, yer, good Iris, quick me think I hear Anthony call. I see him rouse himself to praise my noble act. I hear him mock the luck of Caesar, which the gods give men to excuse their after wrath. Husband, I come. Now to that name my courage prove my title. I am fire and air. My other elements I give to baser life. So have you done? Come then and take the last warmth of my lips. Farewell, kind Charmian, Iris, long farewell. She kisses them, and at the kiss, Iris dies. She's like um, Enobarbus. Nobody kills her, nobody wounds her. Her heart is so overcome, so overcome, she dies. Have I the asp in my lips? Does fall, if thou in nature can so gentle part, the stroke of death is as a lover's pinch, which hurts and is desired. Seek death. Dost thou lie still? If thus thou vanish, thou tellest the world is not worth leave-taking. Dissolve the cloud and rain that I may say the gods themselves do weep. This proves me base. If she meet the curl at Anthony, he'll make demand of her and spend that kiss which is my heaven to have. Come, thou mortal. She puts another asp on her arm and she dies. Uh, when she dies, Charmian puts an asp on her arm and she dies. And the guardsmen come in and say that Caesar's foiled. Caesar comes in and he says about line 340, O noble weakness, if they had swallowed poison, would appear by external swelling, but she looks like sleep as she would catch another Anthony in her strong toil of grace. And they're carried off in, um, in noble honor. I just want to recall one other line before we... This is Act 4, Scene 14, if you go back to line 50. Um, this is just before Anthony asks Eros to kill him. It's, his, it's the third battle. He's defeated the second time with Cleopatra turning and Anthony following her. About line 47, he says, Now all labor mars what it does, yea, very force entangles itself with strength, seal then, and all is done. Eros, I come, my queen, Eros, stay for me, where souls do couch on flowers, we'll hand in hand, this is to her, we'll hand in hand, and with our sprightly port make the ghosts gaze. Dido and her Aeneas shall want troops, and all the haunt be ours. So, this is interesting because Aeneas published, I mean, it became public just about this time. It's, it's hard to believe that um, Anthony would have read Virgil. He's at war, he's not reading books. But this is Shakespeare writing 16 or 1700 years later, drawing an allusion from Virgil to make a comparison between Dido and Aeneas in the afterlife and Aeneas and Aeneas, or, um, Anthony. And Anthony is saying, However much lovers adore this couple, it will come to nothing next to Cleopatra and, and me when we get to the... So, um, here's my question. Here's my question. And I'm not quite sure how to frame it. Um, we talked about Othello a good bit. This is the second tragedy we've read in a short while. You know that, that, that according to Aristotle, all great tragedies show somebody dealing with a great fault 
coming to a point of recognition and an action turning and a balance recovered, some kind of restoration, some disorder is answered in preparation for something good, some disorder justice. We've been watching this couple um, fall in love and then do things that put them absolutely at odds with their regimes. Anthony feels the division when he goes back to Rome and makes his agreement with Caesar to marry Octavia. It's his way of trying to overcome it. Um, Cleopatra waits for him. Um, she beats the, the, the guy who comes to give her bad news about Octavia. Um, Octavia and Anthony marry. Um, they leave when they hear about Caesar. Caesar, Anthony sends Octavia back. He returns to Cleopatra and they go to war. And during that time, um, they, they become partners in the war. She joins him in the battle and he becomes so furious with her that when she leaves that... But my question to you is we're watching these lovers who, whose only identity up until the war was with their regime. Egypt, Queen of Egypt, Anthony, the greatest soldier of Rome. When Anthony loses that first battle, he says, there's no place on the earth to hold me again. I've lost my identity. I'm not who I was. He tells his soldiers to not follow him, to, to leave those who have left because he's betrayed them. But after whipping that guy, he gets his courage up and he says, we're going back into battle. And he goes back into battle and he defeats Caesar. But during that time, Enobarbus leaves him and um, he dies from a broken heart. Eros can't kill him. Iris, when Cleopatra kisses her, dies. Something, and the, the Anthony's God leaves. So f from a strictly historical perspective, the, the play is fairly faithful to historically, on a political level, what happened. Is something else going on in this story in the way that Shakespeare handles it to, to make us aware of something else? Or do we see this as just Caesar's defeat of Anthony and Cleopatra? I'm going to put it graphically this way. Here's, in terms of the play, from Caesar's perspective, it's, it's a rising action. He's always successful. He doesn't lose. So in terms of success, it's a rising action. If you look at the tragedy from one perspective, you can say Anthony and Cleopatra are here. Or, is that the way they look at it? Or is there another line of action um, that we're supposed to see here and what's going on. Are you asking, is that other rising action, is that other action really there or is Shakespeare writing it so that you see it in his work? We're dealing with this play. That's what we're dealing with. Okay, so you're in within Shakespeare. Okay. Always, it's the text, that's what we're dealing I mean, there's an there's a actual history going on, but we know from lots of his plays that he's not always bound. Hamlet, for example, was an actual prince who lived, I think, in the 11th century. When Hamlet opens, Hamlet is coming back from Wittenberg, which was only founded in the 16th century, and it was the place where Luther hung up his theses. So Shakespeare's not... He's not concerned with literal history. He's concerned with history and something else. 
And we've got, we've got these questions here. We're dealing with a couple. They are world leaders. They're involved in major international wars that involve what was seen then as the extent of the earth and Rome's control over it. How are we to understand what happens to, what happens to Anthony? How do we look at them and their love? Is, is what they do purely to be understood purely in a Roman way? Or is there something else that we should be seeing here? Come on, go. What? Me? <laughs> well, you've got that look on your face. No, I, you I, can't. I, I'd love to get in a poker game with you because your reads are all, <laughs> the tells are all. You know, assuming that you know we're, we're staying within the play, I, you know, I'm not sure if I know the answer to your question, honestly. I mean, what I, what I see is, you know, if you look at Octavius and He's, he's very much at one end of the spectrum. I mean, the, the austere Roman prospectus. And if you look at um, Cleopatra in Egypt, she's very much of the, of the, the emotional love end of the spectrum, or the physical versus the metaphysical, if you will. And what I see Antony is he can't make up his mind. I mean, there's a part of him, based on his upbringing and history, that says, you know, you're you're a Roman. Uh, of himself. You, you, yeah, you, yeah, you belong in that yeah. masculine world. Yeah. But he forgets that every time he goes to Egypt and hangs out with Cleopatra. And so he's, he's constantly trying to find that balance between the, the physical and, and the metaphysical and and, and never does. And what you what you see is are the people that are involved with them, that are around them, see that struggle. And, you know, they fall prey to it in their own right. You know, Eros Eros winds up killing himself. Uh, Iris winds up dying yeah. of, you know, heart failure, yeah. if you will, as, yeah. as as does Anthony's man. So you, you see you know, you kind of compare that to the Merchant of Venice and, and you know, that, that search for balance. And you kind of get this feeling that that's what's, that's what's going on here. I, I think there's a sense that Shakespeare's seeing something beyond that, but staying within the play. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I see, but I don't really think that's the answer to your question. Well, let's, let, me, let me frame the question in a different way, too. If you look at... If you look at Wait. If you look at what Christ did in atoning for our sins and asking us to follow him, he made it clear that there was nothing worldly that we should hold on to if we were to follow him completely. He asked us to give up a cross, to bear our sins, to go to the world. When he went to a cross and asked us to pick up our crosses and follow him, one of the things he was asking was, for us not to let humiliation get in the way of following him. So that if we are at a point of having to lose a job or money or give up, the way the world looks at things, reputation, Anthony said, I've lost my reputation, I've lost my place. Um, that's not something the Roman world knows. The Roman world knows, even when, it, when soldiers take their life, that they're doing it as a matter of honor because they're dishonored in the world. All of them. What's interesting, when, when Caesar and Anthony go to war, 
is that Enobarbus is acting perfectly within that code when he abandons him because he sees his, his master's lost his mind. He's not doing what he should do in worldly terms because in worldly terms you should be trying to succeed. We've been doing this from the beginning. He leaves him the next battle Anthony wins. Enobarbus is crushed in his heart. He says, I'm, I'm the greatest villain in the world because one of the things that's happening now is that people are, are being guided by something higher than just worldly reputation. Because Anthony is more and more dissociating himself from Rome, and Cleopatra is dissociating herself from Egypt. Uh, she is not going to go, she's not going to let Caesar shame her. But the question, and Anthony is not going to do the same, and he wants to take his life. The, the question is, are they motive, is their motive honor, worldly honor? Or has a love between them brought them to something between them that the world doesn't know at that point? Remember the opening lines when Anthony, I, we started there. What were his words? They're not spoken. We don't hear him say, I love you. What we hear is, tell me how much. And he says, there's no way to set a limit up. To explain the love that I feel for you would take new heaven, new earth. What runs through this whole place, this play is an undercurrent of something greater than the world that this world does not know. And the question it seems to me we have to ask ourselves in reading this particular play is, when Anthony and Cleopatra die at the end, when they take their lives, are they doing it in worldly terms or have they gotten to a place beyond it? And what reinforces that is you've got all these people around them, not you know, Barbus and Iris, they're not taking their lives. They're dying crushed from seeing what's happening to the love before them because there's nothing in the world that has shown them a love like that before. You won't see it in Caesar. Certainly not going to see that love in him. It didn't exist in Cleopatra for Anthony. I mean, all this stuff goes on. So it seems to me something's... Shakespeare's making us aware that however important humiliation or self-reputation is in the world, it ceases to be a value against which we define this couple. Because what, what they come to at the end isn't bound by that. D do they know Christ? Absolutely not. That's, that's stretching it a little bit for me. Go to the text. D d or go well, no, it's because I, I know a lot about early Roman history that I've read. But we're not talking, we're talking. I know, I know, whatever, I'm just, so you're saying that that's what Shakespeare is putting into the play, even though it really didn't probably exist that way. What I'm doing is, is asking us to pay it, this is poetry, again, it's not history, and we've talked about differences between that, you know, um, what I'm doing is raising questions that in my mind go to difficulties that very often people don't deal with when they're, you know, I mean, historians are going to read, and they're going by the way, I know this, historians are going to look at this and say, this isn't history, this is poetry, it's, you know, it's lies, and what I'm, what I'm doing is raising questions about what Shakespeare's doing, and I'm trying to be faithful to the text, I mean, right. the, you know, the metaphors, the, the, when you put all this together, and particularly the, the ending, you know, when Eno Barbus dies, or, or, um, and when Anthony Cleopatra come to their end, and you know, and the 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 parody on poetry, 
Anthony shall be brought drunken forth, and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra. Boy, my greatness in the posture of horror. Shakespeare is indirectly saying, this is what the world's poets will make of them. Does it correspond to what we've learned about this couple from our reading of the play? There's a real discrepancy there. When you put on Anthony's God leaving him, there's another God coming. Um, when, you watch, when you watch a couple move from being so determined by the world's images, reputation, you don't, you don't want to be humiliated. Because Shakespeare's got an absolutely different, he's a Catholic. Everything, I mean, everything he does to me is extraordinary in that way. You, we're supposed to not be afraid of being humiliated, of not succeeding. That's why I was quoting the, the Chester, or I mean the um, Churchill. Success is failing and failing and failing and failing and failing. This is Churchill, because he lived with failures his whole life until, you know, they pushed him out of, he was, he was, he was the voice in the wilderness. He's a man who knew failures. And I'm assuming most of us do. You know, whatever goes on in our life, we carry them in some sense of... So what's going on in this play is, is to me, it, it's remarkable when I think about how little embarrassment or, sh or shame plays at the end. That, that however much that quality is there for both of them, Anthony and Cleopatra, it's there. Through, but at the end, it, what he, at least as I'm reading it, what he's leaving us with is that their love for each other, for a human person, is greater than their identity with their state, Rome, Egypt, or for the honor code under which anyone, I mean, we're, we're watching a couple find some, that dream of Cleopatra's, the only image that I'm aware of in literature closer to is Dante with Beatrice, or, or Mary in the Revelation. When I saw Anthony, you know, his eyes were as big as the moon. It, it so corresponds to St. Thomas. The human soul, St. Thomas, is greater than the entire physical universe. Who sees that? How many of us see that? Cleopatra says it. I mean, it's an extraordinary moment. She can't wait to get to him. She sees something. Does, will Caesar ever see that? Not a way. There's not a, not a way in that man will see the thing. He is a great general. He's, in my mind, he's an example of a great world leader. But can he see that dimension of things? Not as we know it. I think it's hard when you've been raised in an environment that subscribes, like you put up their masculinity, strength, honor above everything. Mm. And then that collides with another empire that's just the opposite of that. Yeah, and it's crushed. Yeah, and it, it then what do you do? It creates an uncertainty of how to deal with it. I mean, you could almost say when Christ came to the world, the world was what it was until he came here and he turned it upside down, and people didn't know how to deal with it. Yep, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Just to, to take it back to the paradigm for a minute, you remember the that if you look at the paradigm. And, and give importance to the peripatia, the anagnosis, the recognition, the turn. It's really interesting to watch the two of them in the, in the throes of their death when they're facing death, you know, the humiliation that they both have to suffer in, and ask if there's a recognition. Is their self-understanding at that point the same as it was at the beginning of the play? Did they look at themselves the same way they did? Does Anthony see himself? Um, is, is he lost? 
Because in the, in, in the, after the early defeat, it seems to me, I mean, he's partly lost through the first half of the play, but at least my own reading is at the end, he's not lost. He, he, he's ashamed that she died first. He's ready to take his life and that the whole world of value slips away in the love that they have for each other. It's personal. It's no longer defined in worldly terms. So Shakespeare's giving us a glimpse of something transcendent that Christ made clear, that Shakespeare would have been aware of, that the Romans... If you look at the Roman play when Caesar talks about Rome, there's that line, I'm not going to look for it right now, but, but when Octavia... I can't remember where it, placed, where it took place, but he says that we're ministers of the gods because in the Roman world, the Romans saw the state as an instrument of the gods. You almost could not separate the two. And at the end of the play, that's not true for Anthony and Cleopatra. They're, they've transcended that world. Something's happened. Christ isn't around, but it just, to me, it just raises this question, you know. So the, element, the element that makes this a tragedy is the recognition of a love that hadn't existed or wasn't apparent in the world up until this point. And the suffering that comes from it, or, or the cross that they go through, or... That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's a tragedy, there has to be one, right? Some kind of... Some kind of... Because we're talking about what really is a tragedy and what isn't. Right. And right. it's not just necessarily an unfortunate event, right. but something significant has to come from right. that. Right. And so, the only thing that I was struggling with that. I mean, what made this a tragedy? And I guess what what we're saying here is that 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 unique love that transcended what either society would have otherwise recognized now becomes apparent, perhaps even to Caesar, based on his last lines. Or let me put it differently, because I'm I'm so glad for that. Not the love, but the sin that the world is not aware of. That is that they make the world so important. Their identity is so caught up with success and power and rule for both Caesar and Cleopatra or other worlds is so great that it's kept them from that. But so the tragic flaw, you know, so there is this disorder in the world that the world can't see. Christ makes it clear. I mean, I thought what David said a minute ago was right on that. You know, the world gets turned upside down when he comes in. The whole scale of values gets inverted. That he goes to, he's, he's the leader that the Jews have been looking for, and he goes to a cross. He's humiliated. Um, the, the, what you see is a world that's governed in terms of power and rule and strategy. And, and, what, and the, to even reinforce the point, it's one of the great ironies of, of the story for me is when the story opens... Rome is trying to do everything it can to get free of resentments and grudges from the past. Venge. In the third, third act, it opens with Ventidius saying, we've just defeated the Parthian king, so we've finally taken vengeance on that act. That's the third act. It's not going to stop. We know, I mean, the, you know, the Pax Romana is coming, but how much of that's a fiction? I mean, I'm sure it's relatively speaking, it was a piece, but from a Christian point of view, we know that, that sins and wars are going to continue. So the world, the world of Caesar, Caesar's vision of the world is that with power and strength they can overcome, if you're just patient enough, you can overcome whatever misfortune you face. But what Shakespeare's showing is 
it's not going to happen, that the only answer to it is on the other side of the cross. I mean, that's an absolutely Catholic position, that it's only when you renounce the world and give it up that you experience a love like Christ that can't be defined in, in, you know, in worldly terms when she, when she describes that dream. And then at the very end, um, when she says, give me my robe, put on my crown, I have immortal longings in me, the imperial character in her mind then is clearly not Egypt anymore. Whatever queenly identity she's taking on there, whatever imperial identity, is transcendent. Give me a robe, put on my crown, I have immortal longings in me. Now no more the juice of Egypt's grape shall moist this lip. Yer, yer, good Iris, quick me, thinks I hear Anthony call. I mean, the, the lovers, her handmaids, are their hearts are breaking. They're experiencing something neither one of them had known before, just like Enobarbus. Something's happening in this world that the Romans could never have understood because their, their world was defined in terms of power, success, control, pleasure, you know, another extreme. So I'm, what I'm suggesting, I mean, the questions that I'm asking here is, you know, have to do with this. We're going back to a historical period, something that happened. Romans would not have seen it. Christ is on the borders. He's about to enter the world. Um... Hercules is leaving. I think Shakespeare is just showing us that he was always there, but something's happening, about to happen. And it's interesting that we're getting a glimpse of it in these. So does that make this play more prophetic of Christ's coming? And what would you say? Well, this is being presented as a love that is different from other loves. By the way, just what, remember, love here is defined in terms of state. To patch up the state difficulties, what does Octavia do? They use her as a woman to to make a political arrangement. A woman's a thing, not so in Cleopatra's world, but in the, the, the the, the world that rules, I mean, the Rome that rules the world is, that's their view of woman, so, just hold on to that, that marriage in one sense is a convenience there. So, sorry, Doc, but I just, so go, so go ahead. No, I'm just thinking that, um, I mean, it's easy. I can identify with Valerie's difficulty because the history is not, Shakespeare's not writing as a historian, so he's not looking at the Partly book. is, yeah. Um, what he's done is like, he's, he's done a meditation on what what was going on just before Christ came? What what could we look back at with different eyes and see as prophetic? Um, something that warned us, gave us some kind of hint of what was coming. And then he's making this love that's different from mm-hmm. the loves of that world and saying, so this is what's coming. Yeah. Here's my reluctance to just put it prophetic in the way that you're describing it. Only in the sense, um, but I'm glad again for the... If you read um, Coriolanus, I'm not assuming any of you have, but Coriolanus came late in his life, and Coriolanus is the commander who 
helped bring in the Republic. He was there at the beginning, I've told you before. Coriolanus marks the beginning, Julius Caesar is the Imperium, that's why they killed him. Anthony and Cleopatra mark the end. After this battle, you've got the five emperors and the collapse of Rome. Roman history comes to an end, is in the glory of Rome. Coriolanus was there in the beginning. I would say that when you look at Shakespeare's tragedy, it can be Hamlet later, it can be Coriolanus, was, which was pre-Republican Rome. If you look at the ending of Coriolanus, he's doing the same thing. And um, when I said that when Susanna and I were coming to class tonight, um, um, we were talking about the, you know, the relevance of this um, to our way of seeing. And what's interesting about Coriolanus is, and every single Shakespeare play, particularly in his mature, you can take Macbeth, Lear, you can take any one of them. If you look at them, no, oh, here's, sorry, what she said, which I think all of us know, that if you don't have a belief in God and you read a, a book like Moby Dick or Scarlet Letter or Anthony and Cleopatra, if you don't believe in God and you approach the work that way, you're not going to see these things. You're just not going to see them. And if you're a, if you're a black-white Christian, let's say a Catholic, fundamentals doesn't matter, you could read them and misread them you can make claims for miracles that the text doesn't support. And that's why I try to do the best I can to stay with the text. Too often we read for our own ideas. We start with beliefs on our heads and we read a text to confirm them. The, the, the people that, that Christ entered the world to save did that everywhere. They read the law and couldn't see past it. We do that a lot. We read for our own ideas. If, you're, if you don't believe, there's a lot of this stuff, nobody's going to give any credence to it. They're going to say it's all poetry. It's all, it's all embellishment. The, the test is whether, you, whether you're faithful to the text and can bring it out to make it, you know, so it's, it's always there. In Coriolanus, I would say Shakespeare's doing exactly the same thing with that guy. This is pre-Roman. It's not close to Christ coming. But what happens to Coriolanus, and it's something Coriolanus can't see. It's a tragic ending. Um, he's the guy that's going to, he was um, exiled from Rome. He gathers an army together to come destroy Rome. His mother comes out to persuade him against doing it because if he attacks Rome, he's going to be killing his own family. And he knows when he does that, his life is over because he's already made, he's made alliances with some people who want to kill, attack Rome. And when he, when he decides not to attack Rome, they kill him. So it's a tragic ending. He's killed. He's this tragic hero. And his last sentence is about the gods laughing at him because in his Roman pride, he thinks he's failed. And you can look at it that way. You can also look at it another way because the word is something like the gods amusing or something. You can also say it wasn't a laughter of mockery. It was a laughter in pride at what he had done. He had given up his, he sacrificed his life for his mother, because he knew by not going ahead with it, he'd, he'd get killed. So when you read Shakespeare enough, you're aware that critic, if you're a Freudian, if you're a Marxist, if you're a feminist, you're gonna read, you know, um, you're gonna bring your beliefs. The, the question here, is Shakespeare doing something in the way that he manages things so that he's faithful to historical reality without becoming literalist, like a, Historian, because sometimes historians get so lit, they think they're better because they're 
literal. But if you, if you watch historians writing about the same period, you'll see that even if they're treating the same thing literally in the same period, they will come away with different conclusions because it depends on where they start, what they're looking at. So being absolutely literal in your treatment of history doesn't make you more truthful. It, it's, you know, it's what's there. Do we see it? The whole effort here is, um, is God doing something? Are, is the, are these poets helping us to see something that we wouldn't see without the poet? So the question I'm raising to tonight is, is there something going on with this love? Um, seems to me it is, pretty strongly. And I would just, I would be cautious about saying it's prophetic unless I said um, Coriolanus was prophetic. Or I mean, I, you know that I believe there's a whole prophetic element to all these poems anyway because he's doing amazing things with them. But so what is Shakespeare doing? I'm sorry, doing? I have a harder time. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I'm not I do. I have a harder time no. because Egypt was, had the pharaohs way before, so this, she was just, she's an anomaly. If you think about Egypt's history, it is male-dominated. It's just right here, it's feminine. So I have all of that history that I know, and it's kind of like... Uh, just be careful what you do with the play with it, that's all. No, no, the play, no, no, no. no. I, I, I understand maybe what Shakespeare is trying to, to say, but I, I don't have that full faith that their love was supposed to mean something else. I think it was they were two strong-willed people, That's two pagan people, and for, I'm just saying, Shakespeare might want to say that might be an interesting angle. I just don't think. <laughs> Truthfully, in how it happened in life, that's the same thing. Are we talking about the theories in your mind or the play right now? No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying the play, I can understand what you're saying about the play. I'm just thinking historically that to me... Remember one of the questions that I began with too, and I'm, I'm trying, I hope, I'm, I'm really trying hard to be as careful of these plays as I can, but since one of the questions we're dealing with is, can we find Christ where we don't see him, the question that I began the last couple of classes with, as, as honestly, is an open question. What was God doing before Christ came? Because I'm so aware that when, we, when we're when we in a church setting, we tend to limit God literally to those. And we don't see God at work in the world. I mean, one of the purposes of this work we're doing together, if there's any purpose, is, is he around when we don't, is he at work? Can we see, even if, we, even if the people are not perfect images of him, Portia might be, you know, Helena, I think Helena and Portia are two extraordinary Christ images. Even, even, if, even if he's not perfectly imaged in a human being, is he partly there? Do we see it? Are we, are we really aware? You know, I, I'm, I'm so aware. We're so aware of our selfishness, our faults, our, the faults of other people. Do, do, we see, do we see Christ working even in our own selfishness? Cleopatra is a very selfish person. Bang. But what she, I mean, Shakespeare's seeing something, I mean, that line, God, and the priest prays her when she's riggish. What he's saying is, either we're in a black-white Calvinistic world, or that means even sometimes when we're selfish, God is working with us. God is working with us. Unless we're in a black-white world. 
Do we see Christ? Are we aware of him at us, particularly in our struggles when we're aware of our failures? Lose a job. Who doesn't lose his identity at a time like that? Have a problem in the family. Things happen. Are we aware of some goodness in those times? Or do we really see it? Is there, I, what strikes me about you know Helena, if you just go back, remember her, she said, it's so often, how did she put it? It was our lack of faith. That wasn't, the, those were her words, but she was making it clear. We just don't risk our faith enough. And when you watch Christ going through scriptures, you see him coming into towns where the people have no faith, nothing happens. It, it, how much do we really risk our faith and live it? How much does it affect the way we see our world, engage with it? What we, the, you know, is it, do we see things through black and white eyes, make judgments that are black and white? Do we really see what's going on underneath the surface? And I don't want to lose this chance here because of what you said and what Suzanne said. If you think about Plato's cave, because we've gone back to it again and again, and you see that each regime has its own character in that cave, right? Merchant of Venice is there, Anthony and Cleopatra is there. The cave is always there. Each regime has its own set of appearances. Each regime has its own values. It, it sees different appearances. The question is, for Plato, it was his question. Shakespeare took it seriously. In each one of those settings, Egypt, France, um, Venice, Germany with Hamlet, I mean, go wherever we're going to go. Um, go to any one of those regimes in Plato's terms, where, we're, where the poet, the great poets, are representing that world exactly as it is to that regime, Melville and Moby Dick, Hawthorne will do it in Scarlet Letter, Shakespeare's doing it here. And do we see, do we, does the poet see what transcends that particular regime? Here's the extraordinary thing about Shakespeare, extraordinary. He's written plays on almost every more important modern regime in the world. And even and in every single one of them, he works with a given of that regime, whatever it is, and shows something extraordinary going on that's peculiar to that regime. I can't think of anything more Catholic. Who can do that? Dante didn't do it. Dante was more universalist. Shakespeare takes every one of those regimes, he, he renders it exactly as it is, he shows the problems that are peculiar to that regime, and he shows something transcendent. Portia, Helena, Hamlet, you know, you can go down the line. Is something extraordinary happening here? I would argue yes, exactly in terms, and yet what's happening is Christ-like. Some love is entering this world that this world does not know, and it's turning it on its head. It's, it's turning away from the Anthony and Cleopatra from defining themselves in terms of complete worldly shame. That no longer has a hold on them in the love that they feel for each other. And my argument is that's Christ-like. And it happens at a time in the world. They, know, they don't know Christ. All, all I'm saying is Shakespeare, I think Shakespeare is aware from Plato and everything else of the ways in which God is at work in the world, you pick the time, it doesn't matter, when most people don't see him. It's one of the values of Shakespeare. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. So in your mind, what makes this a tragedy? I, I think it's putting together the two things we said, what you said, Fred, and, and my taking the dark side of it. It's that, that everything is defined, you know that, everything's defined in terms of success. When Anthony 
Um, he learns that Fovia's dead and he has to go back. He feels divided. The Roman, he feels like he's been playing loose with the Roman side. He's got to go back and find himself. To go back is to go back to terms of success, power, world control, to get away from pleasures of the body with Cleopatra and and then, Mar and, then, wait, and then marry Octavia, which is to step into that world, and then suddenly learn that Caesar betrayed it all. You know, you're, we're, you're still stuck in that world. He goes back to Cleopatra, you've got these wars, but what happens during, it's interesting, what, what happens, this is so consistent with Flannery O'Connor, that grace tends to reveal itself more fully in times of violence, the cross is the most perfect example. That during those wars, these radical changes take place in both of them. An Anthony loses himself completely. Cleopatra has to acknowledge, finally, she says, I'm sorry, you know, I'm ashamed. That you're, you're seeing two people have to deal with emotions that they'd never dealt with before at time. So the tragic quality, if you're gonna press for that, for me would be, it's this way of the world, that, that when you're in it, you don't see it as a sin because you're too successful. Go to Hollywood and ask if anybody who's successful is in sin, and they'd say, Are you nuts? Look at my wealth. But the question is, how much do they love? You know, are they... They love themselves. Huh? They love themselves. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it is a selfish love. And the tragedy for me is all of the good people in this play that die because of it. Because yeah. of what? Their love. Their love, their love, yes, it has nothing to do with Caesar wanting power or trying to overcome vengeance. All these—that's part of the, the vengeance. You see, the civil wars that die, never stop. His best friend dies. Oh, I die of heartache because of my—it's yeah, yeah. That's Anthony's fault. Wait, here, let me just put they, it differently. They, they destroyed everything. They okay. I hope it's clear from the because I don't think I'm imposing. This is—I hope it's clear here that when this play opens, they're trying to recover from civil wars. And they do it with the expectation that they can keep doing. But every scene we go from introduces us to another civil war. Those wars are not stopping. Anthony and Cleopatra's love did not cause those wars. Though, what Shakespeare's showing is that's inherent. They never stop. People are not going to stop feeling resentment. They're not going to stop feeling unjustly treated. They're always going to go and get back. Pompey, Caesar, Lepidus. Um, that's the way of the world. Is it any, diff is it any different today? Find a place on the earth that isn't embroiled in a world in a war today. I think Shakespeare's being faithful to the world as it is. He's showing us what it was then. I don't think it's any different now. But in this case, he's also showing us something else is going on. It's pretty clear they're breaking. Anthony and Cleopatra are coming to something that isn't defined in those terms, and the, that world doesn't know. I, the, interesting. I think Caesar, and Caesar to me is an interesting. He's really a good ru a ruler. He acknowledges the greatness at the end. You know, he um, he still would have carted her off. I mean, he would have seen. You, he would have used her as his trophy. That's what the world does. She didn't have his kid. He allowed um, Matthew to be buried by Cleopatra. Yep. He allowed that. There's a goodness in him. I mean, whatever whatever faults he has, I, mean, some, I just think you have to admire him as a political ruler. That, well, or at least I, I do. He didn't keep the republic. He became. He made himself a god. Let's, let's be yeah, true. Don't, don't stretch that. Too. Yeah, he, he. People thought he was going. Yeah. To and they killed him. He didn't. 
Wait, are you talking about no, Caesar or no, Augustus? No, it's Augustus. This is Augustus. This is not uh, Julius Caesar. I think that title was also conferred on him. It wasn't just, yes. but but. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, yes, he really wanted the republic, but in the end, nah. <laughs> nope. 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 We're starting. And I think white. Yeah, that's, that's not exactly fair either. <laughs> that's not. That's not. I mean, and Augustus you know, he had did, wife, but he, he also did, had one boy. He did, in essence, create a peace that never existed before. Yeah. In relative terms, you have to get, I mean, really, when you look at the world, you have to say, whatever, we're in a fall. You can't expect heaven here. What he did is really remarkable, given the nature of the world. You just can't, I can't take credit away from him. Um, the interesting thing is that Shakespeare's, I think, in a good way, faithful to that, but he's also showing, I believe, something that transcends it. Um, we're doing Scarlet Letter. We're going back to our American founding. Starting next time. Well, we're off. Next week, we're off. No, Thanksgiving. Next week. By the way, before everybody goes... We're taking up Yeah. All you have a really good Thanksgiving. Be safe in your travels, but have a good Thanksgiving. What about the cathedral? When are we doing that? After that. We're doing it chronologically, Jeannie. It's Hawthorne and Elliot and then Dostoevsky. Okay. So are we